What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Well, hi again. It's me, Mike Rowe, with another unforgettable episode of The Way I Heard It. Specifically, it's 358. It's called Five Days in November. Because, Chuck, it occurs to me that, um, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, but I don't think I'm the most famous person in my neighborhood anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You're just finding this out, but uh, I think everybody in your neighborhood knows that. (laughs) Clint is a national treasure. and uh, Uh, People tell me I'm a national treasure, but I don't think they really understand what a national treasure is. You know, this is one of those conversations that will force you to draw a line. Sure, you might like me. You may have seen me on TV shows such as Dirty Jobs, Somebody's Got to Do It, and Returning the Favor, and maybe you've read a book or seen a speech or enjoyed this podcast, but whatever, that's just a guy making a living doing the best he can with the cards he's got. Clint Hill Mm -hmm. starred in a movie that, um, well, unlike any other, he starred in the Zapruder film. There he is, and there he was, and today he is still... Seared into our collective retina as the guy who was on hand seconds after JFK was assassinated, threw himself over Jackie's body and JFK's, and his life has never been the same. And uh, aside from my mom, I think he's the only person to be on this podcast now for, uh, what, three times. This is the third time we've had him on. Third time's a charm, yeah. And I'm sorry just to bring this back to me ever so briefly, Chuck, but it occurs to me that my mother is now more famous than I am as well. And this is, this is not going as I have planned it. I didn't want to bring that up. But uh, listen, I think your mom would even agree that uh, Clint Hill is more of a national treasure than either of you. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, I think you're right. But on the positive side, I wound up through complete happenstance having access to this man. You know, he's 91 years old now. He'll be 92 in January, I believe. And he and his wife, Lisa, have written uh, five books, I think. And uh, mm-hmm. one of them has just been re-released. Ten years ago, Five Days in November came out. It was a bestseller. It was an important book then. But I think it's actually more important now. They've re-released a very limited number. This is a collector's edition with an afterword in it that Clint has written that addresses a lot of the conspiracy theories that are out there head on and really wraps this whole thing up, I think, in a way that makes it much more than a book, certainly much more than a history book. It's something that I think every family should have on the shelf because this country is going to be, well, we're going to continue to be impacted by the events of that day. And I think this is the best book I've seen that really summarizes all of it. From November 63 to the present, you look at public polling, more and more people are disbelieving the single shooter theory, which was established by the Warren Commission. They said it was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. And as the years go by, fewer and fewer people believe that, and more and more people are believing these conspiracy theories 
that have not been proved. And I like the way Clint handles it. You know, he says, you can talk about your theories, but these are the facts. You know, right. I was there. There were three shots. He's very persuasive in this book. And he's very persuasive when he tells the story, because having read the book and then hear him tell the story, his story doesn't change. Am I right? Yeah. Well, he was there. And right, unlike a lot of other accounts, his recollections have never wavered. It's not just that the pictures in this book are super cool and really interesting in and of themselves. They bolster his version of events, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I really like about it. And I was thinking as we were having this conversation with my very famous neighbor, the national treasure, Clint Hill, I was thinking (laughs) our recent conversation with my favorite skeptic, Michael Shermer, makes this point as well. He has a book out about conspiracy theories, and he talks a lot about why. Why are people so pulled in to these alternative version of events that have no concrete evidence to support them? They just don't, you know? And if you're patient enough to pull back the layers and really look at it objectively, you're going to come to the same conclusion that the UFO thing is just not happening. Sorry, it's not happening. Okay, the ghostly encounters. Sorry, there's just no proof. You can believe whatever you want. You can believe whatever you want about JFK, too. But if you do it in front of Clint Hill, he's going to hand you a book and he's going to show you some pictures and he's going to tell you a firsthand version of events that you simply cannot dispute. That's why the book is important. That's why I'm pleased and honored to be sharing a zip code with my friend Clint Hill and his lovely wife, Lisa. Get a load of this conversation, and uh, you'll hear me say it as we discuss this, but if you want this book, and trust me, you do, pre-order it now. It drops today, and it is going to be gone before it even gets to the shelves of your local bookstores, I promise. Here it is, five days in November, with Clint Hill and Lisa McCubbin Hill, right after this. Big day here on the podcast. How big? Well, we're welcoming a new sponsor. And uh, we're so excited that uh, Chuck has insisted on joining me as we sing the praises of three-day blinds. Chuck, is it true, first of all, are you going to immediately Mm -hmm. avail yourself to the services of this fine company? Absolutely. I'm going to go to the website, threedayblinds.com slash row, and uh, sign up for this deal, Toot Suite. Why? Why? What is it with you and blinds? <laughs> I have the blinds I have are all broken. It's really terrible. I can't make it dark. It's either all dark all the time or all light all the time. I, the thing is broken. I got to fix it. Uh, it. It has to be done. Well, I've been to your condo on more than one occasion. And as a man who has enjoyed the uh, many splendors of your guest oh. bedroom, I can vouch to everything you've just said. The sun comes in. Uh, screaming, comet-like, early in the morning. I've been begging you for a long time, do something Mm -hmm. for crying out loud. And it's got to make you feel... I know you're not the only schmuck on the planet who wakes up screaming like a vampire bathed in the hot winter sun. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you've been to my house, too. And one of my favorite things about this place is that it came with great blinds. I've got the automatic kind that go up, down, down. I can make it really, really dark in here. And it's a game-changer. And I can't wait for you to do this so we can talk specifically about how your life has changed for the better. We're going to. Yeah, absolutely. Sign me up right now. That goes for the rest of you. Honestly, your blinds are a big deal. And it doesn't take a ton of money to make a huge change in your life. And you don't want to skimp on these things either. But these guys are the best. It says right here. 
4.7 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. They've been in business 45 years. Everybody seems to love them. I can't wait to see how it works out for Chuck. As for you, you can get three-day blinds with a buy one, get one 50% off deal right now. This is on custom blinds, shades, shutters, drapes, whatever you need to keep that lucky old sun from beaming into your home when you don't want it to. For free, no charge, no obligation consultation. You just head to 3dayblinds.com slash row. That's buy one, get one 50% off at 3dayblinds.com slash row. That's 3dayblinds.com slash row. That's the number three, dayblinds.com slash R-O-W-E. Clint, how are you, sir? I'm awake. <laughs> that is a start. <laughs> we'll take it. You know what? That's better than not, man. No kidding, man. That's one of the great lessons in life. I don't know if you've experienced it yourself, but for me, the business of managing expectations is somewhere near the very top of the list, right? So if the bar is awake, that's terrific. We can only go uphill. That's right. That's true. Awake and upright. Fogging a mirror, as my uh, grandfather used to say. Good indication you're still there. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we might want to talk about the surprise that we had for Clint and what his reaction was. Yeah, you know what? Let's start there, Lisa, because of the uh, many regrets that I know I'm going to have one day when I look back at my misspent life and career. It's not being present for that. I was in Italy at the time, and apparently I missed quite the shindig. Well, it really was, and I had no idea what was going on. Explain what happened. Well, I had been told that two friends of ours from Washington, D.C., Rocky Delmonico and his girl, and his wife, I guess she's his wife, Emily. Eileen. Eileen, I'm sorry. (laughs) were coming, and they were bringing with them a gentleman from Italy who was a friend of ours, and who works for... Uh, Delara. Delara. They make all the chassis for race-class cars, number one. Type 8,500. 8,500 cars. Mm-hmm. The cars in Monaco and places. And so they came, and she had me get all gussied up for them. We were going to go to dinner, and they insisted I go out on the deck and sit there by the table and talk to them while she was doing something else. And, I noticed when she came downstairs that she was dressed rather like she was going to go someplace special. And I mentioned it to her. She had some answer, like she had a new gown she just wanted to try and something. I also noticed that this was on a Wednesday. The gardeners usually came on Friday, but that day they came Wednesday morning. So I asked her about that, and she had some cock and mammy story to tell me about that. So I finally went out at the table and sat there talking to these three people and turned to the right and standing in the doorway leading out to the grassy area of our yard, first guy I saw was a guy that I had come into the Secret Service with on the same day in 1958, Ron Pontius from Chicago. Good grief. I thought, Ron's pretty sick. Did I just die and I'm in heaven? (laughs) And Ron's there. And he took a step forward, and right behind him was Jerry Blaine from Grand Junction, Colorado. He and I were together 
on the detail. Gee, uh, all these guys died at the same time. I mean, and there came Tommy Wells from Florida and Ken, Ken General from Chicago and uh, Rad Jones, Rad Jones from, from Michigan. <laughs> I mean, just I kept on coming. It turns out she had arranged for a surprise party <laughs> for me here. He didn't die. And all these guys had flown in from all over the country. Even one of the widows flown in. Her son helped her get here by accompanying her from Virginia Beach, Virginia. I mean, it was amazing. Uh, these guys were just fantastic guys. One of them was a former director of the Secret Service, Joe Clancy from Philadelphia. He and his wife were here. And then she had arranged all this stuff. I had no knowledge whatsoever that she was doing this. She arranged to have them go out on a boat. They came in on a Wednesday. They went out on a boat, enjoyed themselves. I couldn't believe this all happened, but it did. It was the most wonderful surprise one can imagine. Clint, what kind of Secret Service agent are you? How do you not figure this out? Was there no advance work? Were there no clues? Can a man of your experience be so duped? I, I, I have to admit, I'm a really dumbass. <laughs> no, you're out of practice. You're out of practice. That must be it. I guess I'm a good actress. She made no indication at all prior to the time that I was made aware that these other three people were coming. There was no indication of anything other than that. And she had alerted a lot of people. And they really all kept their mouths shut. What did it take to arrange this? How long did it take? I mean, it's pretty remarkable. You just went down a list of people who were, many are in their, what, their ninth decade from all over the country. So, I mean, we normally, every September, we would attend the annual Secret Service Agents Conference of former Secret Service agents. And we always looked forward to going to that. And the last one we went to was 2019. Then there was COVID, and then they had one this past year. But since Clint can't travel anymore, we realized we're not going to get to go to those anymore. So I got the idea, well, why don't we bring part of the conference to us? Invite the people that are really special to us and see if they'll come. Well, I knew that Clint would never go for this. He would shut me down. Right? Yeah, that's true. He never would have done this. So I sent out an email to all these people and I said, I have this idea. Why don't we all get together and come to, you know, our beautiful little town here outside of San Francisco and, uh, you know, how many people can come? Well, people, Ken Giannoulis canceled his trip to Italy to come. He unlike said, Mike. Unlike Mike, but he said he, he wouldn't miss it. And, you know, I was, I think it's such a tribute to Clint that all these people made that effort to come to see him. Yeah, everybody kept it quiet. It was, it was so amazing. And it was just a beautiful time. You know, once they all got together, all these guys, it's just like no time has gone by and they start telling stories. It was fantastic. Yeah, some of the photographs are Tremendous take that day of this get together. I'll never get over it. But I never thought he would have the reaction that he thought he had died I I, and I, gone to I, heaven. I, I really thought I must, I must be dead. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Lisa, I mean, he's a, he's 91 years old. I mean, really oh, a surprise. She, she's taking that. chances at, boy. <laughs> she really is. She really rolled the dice on that one, brother. I know. Wow. What a way to go. <laughs> well, congratulations on a, a great event and, and on not dying and everything else. It, it really must be extraordinary. I mean, I've never been, <laughs> with respect, as old as you. But to look back through the mists of time, through the decades, with friends, dear friends who were there at, you know, really this turning point in history. Does it feel like a very long time ago, or does it feel like yesterday to you? It depends upon the situation. Some things feel like they were 65, 70 years ago, like my high school graduation or my college graduation or my basic training in the Army. I guess those things weren't the top of my list. But uh, some things seem like it was just last week, and uh, it's 50 years since that event happened. So it varies depending upon the situation. Is it strange for you, Lisa, to, to see how time can get compressed? This book originally came out 10 years ago yes. on the 50th anniversary. Now it's been 60 years. You've republished five days in November with some new materials in it that are kind of extraordinary. But I just wonder, is it getting more and more surreal as you look around and see the interest in this event? It seems to be growing as time goes on. It does, actually. You're right. So this book, Five Days in November, is all about those five days around the assassination of President Kennedy, um, of which Clint, of course, was right there in the middle of all of it. And the idea for this was to show it in photographs and Clint's first person account as he's going through it, present tense, so you're witnessing things as he witnesses it, not knowing what's ahead. And it's really rather timeless, I think. The idea now at the 60th anniversary was since the book is written in the present tense for Clint now to look back 60 years and give his perspective on why there is this fascination still with all of this, why there are still questions and controversies and conspiracies, and to give, you know, again, his first-person unmatched account. And to me, I mean, that's it. Chuck, I want you to jump in real quick, because we were talking earlier, and I I rarely ask for Chuck's opinion because no one really cares, and it's not relevant (laughs) by and large. But... It's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. But he loves this book so much. (laughs) It's true. I do. Well, you had some really good points about it. Like, I remember 10 years ago when this came out, the market was flooded with all kinds of recollections and reminiscences, and yours stuck out for obvious reasons. But now, for whatever reason, it really is standing alone. And Chuck, you had some interesting thoughts as to why. Well, I listened to the book on tape which uh, unfortunately I didn't see the photos that are in the book and I will hope to get a copy of the full book so I can see those, but you will get a copy (laughs) in just listening to it. 29.99. It's first person. It's present tense. So I'm just experiencing everything with Clint from those five days. It was like a movie to me and I got incredibly emotional multiple times In the book, just the tragedy of it all, you set up so beautifully the people's reactions to the Kennedys every place in Texas that they were. 
this was a beloved couple. This was a beloved president. And I think what Mike is referring to, the one thing that um, got to me is that um, in the end, the, uh, the epilogue where you talk about the conspiracy theories and why you believe that it was just one man who did this, and you make a brilliant point by using the photographs to say where the bystanders were looking because they had heard the gunshots. And that's a huge indication of what exactly happened. I just thought it was brilliantly done. Brilliantly done. Yeah, yeah. in that particular photo, it's just as um, the first shot has gone off, you can see in the background the people that are standing alongside the presidential vehicle. They've come there to see the president and the first lady, right. and they're literally in front of them, and the people are turned away. They're turned back towards where they heard the sound. So, toward the book depository yeah. building. Towards the Texas Six, School Book Depository. Sixth floor window, Texas School Book Depository, mm-hmm. yes, sir. Nobody's turned around to look at the grassy knoll. No, nobody I thought saw. Mm-hmm. All right, look, I want to get into this. I just want to read something real quick, yes, all right, sir. because this struck me. It's just a real short paragraph. In fact, it's the beginning of the afterward. On November 22, 1963, my life changed forever because of the history-altering crime committed in my presence in Dallas, Texas. Before that day, I was just Clint Hill. But in the 60 years since, I have been known as the man who climbed onto the back of the presidential car when JFK was assassinated. It's not a label I carry out of pride. It's the label I have learned to accept. When we originally wrote this book, 50 years after the assassination, my hope was that sharing these indelible memories from my unmatched perspective would provide not only current readers, but future generations as well, with an authentic version of what actually happened that fateful day. And here's the sentence that's important to me. It concerns me deeply that now, 60 years after the tragedy, numerous polls show that a majority of American citizens still believe that a conspiracy was involved in JFK's death, despite the lack of conclusive evidence. This belief is based on countless theories that continue to proliferate across the Internet, and I fear that once all of us who were witnesses to history are gone, the truth will be buried along with us. That's it. There are only two people left from that motorcade that we... Uh, either the president's car or the follow-up car that are still alive. I'm one of them. So why, Lisa, is it so important as a journalist to make sure that one of the surviving witnesses has his exact recollections perfectly preserved as this book does? Well, I think, Clint, as you know, was reluctant to talk about any of this for so many years. And then once he started talking and going out and speaking about this, he realized there was tremendous interest and his memories are important to history. And the great thing about Clint, as you know and have witnessed, is his memory is extraordinary. He remembers details If you look at the photographs and he'll tell you a story, it's exactly as it is in the photograph. So, you know, it was just important to write this down for history so that that it's everlasting, because like you said, he's the last one. And 40 years from now, what are people going to 
know or see or think. They might see what's on the internet. And it might be, you know, Oliver Stone's movie. People believe that. That was really a disservice to the truth. What does it feel like, Clint, to be sitting at home, flicking around the TV, you come across the Oliver Stone movie or any number of other versions of the way somebody else heard it, right? To be sitting there and watching something that you know for a fact to be just completely untrue. It really bothers me to know that that kind of stuff is, in fact, out there, and it is. It's not just that movies by Oliver Stone. It's like you said, there's other stuff. But then he comes out with more stuff besides the movie. He had another thing out this year, and he called on certain technical people that he thought were uh, really important to the issue, and uh, turns out they didn't know a damn thing. It was really sick. I actually got sick of my stomach listening to him. We had to turn it off. He was so repulsed by it. He really felt physically sick that this was on television, that people were saying these things as if they were fact. And of course, people will believe them. It just seems like we're living in a time. And, you know, I'd love your thoughts on this too, Clint. I mean, there's always the fog of war. There's always he said, she said. There's always conflicting accounts. It just feels like we're living in a time in a very general way where we're surrounded by experts who can't seem to agree on a set of facts. And I wonder, do you worry that the truth in so many different areas is being missed by so many people? Oh, it is. You know, when a a government institution like the Warren Commission, which was set up by LBJ, and chaired by uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, when they make errors in perception and judgment in their final conclusions, and they're trying to sell that to the American public, that's what creates these problems. There are some things that they said and did, that, like the magic bullet theory, that's one thing. It just is amazed to me that anybody was dumb enough to accept it, but (laughs) that created conspiracies all up and down the line. And it's just sick sick and sad. You'll be pleased to know, at least some of you will, I suppose, that Chuck is still with us here on the podcast. Haven't fired him this week. And ironically, he's joining me uh, for another commercial read because our friends at ZipRecruiter have asked me to talk about some of the people I'm grateful for on my show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and since there's only one person, I thought I'd invite him in. Chuck, congratulations. You still have a job. How's it going? Uh, it's going great, Mike. Tell me about this gratitude. <laughs> well, look, it won't take long. It's only a 60-second spot. Uh, Zip Recruiter, in all seriousness, has been a loyal sponsor of this podcast. And, you know, I joke with him all the time now because after six, seven years, I'm not sure what I can tell you that you already don't know. So let me sum it up. Hiring is a colossal pain in the ass. It's never mm. been more difficult. I've known this genius I'm looking at on my computer right now for over 40 years. Uh, He's my loyal friend, and he's not a very good producer, but he tries so hard, and he really, really cares deeply about the podcast and everything on it. And if I had to replace him, 
I certainly wouldn't go back to high school and look at that short list of knuckleheads who are still alive. I'd go to ZipRecruiter.com slash row, and I'd be very candid about my needs. And then I would join the four out of five satisfied employers who find a quality candidate within the first day. And, of course, I put quality in quotes, Chuck, just because I'm feeling snarky. But you know what I mean. That's very generous of you. I feel very, very appreciated at this moment. So thank you for that. You know, we laugh because if we don't, we'll weep. There are 7.2 million men out there right now, able-bodied men who are choosing not to mm. work. I don't know what's up with that. Mm. I really I can't explain the skills mm. gap. I can't explain. There's so many things that are just bananas in our economy that I really understand how difficult it is to recruit. And I've used ZipRecruiter. I've used them at MicroWorks. I didn't find Chuck there. I found him in high school four decades ago. But hey, look. You play the cards you get, folks, and you can dramatically improve your own deal at ZipRecruiter.com slash row. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash row. Thank you, Chuck. You can post a job for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash row, correct? Did I not say that? I don't think so. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I'm going to keep you around for another month. Post a job for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash row. And tune in next week to see if we're still on the air. That'll be interesting. Try ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So <laughs> at what point, Lisa, was the magic bullet in your research dismissed as nonsense? Or has it ever been? Does it still somehow persist? No, because I, Clint has the answer, I mean, as to what happened. And he was there and he witnessed it. So there was no magic bullet. Clint, tell them what, what, what happened. What happened was uh, there were three shots, all fired from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. One rifle, three shots. Shot number one hit President Kennedy in the upper back, below the neck, just to the right of the spinal cord, and uh, came out through the throat. Shot number two hit Governor John Connolly and caused him serious damage. It went, it uh, was so powerful it went through various parts of his body uh, and really damaged his back, his arm, his thigh. It's just, it really made a mess. They were able to take care of him though at the hospital once we got in there. And then shot number three, it hit President Kennedy in the head. At the time, the president was had fallen to his left toward Mrs. Kennedy, who was seated on his left. Their faces were almost touching. His head was slightly down, like this. That bullet entered back here, but erupted right up in here, right above the ear, and blew that, a portion of the skull out. It was still attached, part of the skull was still attached to the hairline, to the skin with the hair. It had just kind of flipped forward. But a great bunch of material came right out of there, blood, bone material, brain material. That was a fatal shot. Nobody could survive that. We got him to the hospital as quickly as we could. I screamed at the driver to get us to the hospital. The supervisor in the president's car was talking to the lead car, which was right in front of the president's car, 
and being driven by the chief of police in Dallas, telling them that we'd been hit, get us to a hospital, and they were leading us to a hospital. Luckily, we're just getting on a freeway. We had free access, and uh, we got him to the hospital within a few minutes. But nothing could have been done for him anyway. He was dead. And does it strike you, I mean, when you look back at it, it's sort of an odd combination of things to know for sure. The first thing you know for sure is that he's dead, and it doesn't matter when he gets to the hospital. He's going to be dead when he arrives. The second thing is you have to get him to the hospital as quickly as humanly possible. Those two things seem odd, right, to exist at the same time, Well, but obviously they did. But we also had a wounded person in the car, John Conlon, and we had to get him to a hospital, and we had, so we had to get that car containing those occupants to the quickest, to the nearest hospital as fast as possible, and that's what we did. But this is really interesting on the back cover of this book. I guess that's from the Zabruder film, and there's a frozen shot of you running after the car, halfway into it. Jackie is crawling toward you. Her husband is dead. And in the caption below it, it says, if you trip or stumble or fall or fail to get into this accelerating car, you're going to be run over by the car behind you. There's no doubt. You're on a locomotive. The stakes could, I mean, it's hard to imagine how things could have been worse. But having a Secret Service agent run over as he tried to get into the car would have certainly been a, uh, would have been a hell of a thing. Well, and Mrs. Kennedy, if Clint hadn't gotten there, she, she could have thrown, been thrown off the car she and she, she would have been run over. She would have come off the back of the car. She could not have She would have been run there. over. She'd have come off the back of the car. They'd have run over her, too. So, uh, oh, my God. God, can you imagine? I was lucky that uh, I was as quick as I was and that uh, I was able to get my foot up on the back bumper. There was a place there for agents to stand. It's about maybe a foot square. And uh, I got my foot up there, but then it was the same time that the car accelerated slightly and my foot slipped off. And I had to take about two more steps to get it back up there. And then... I throw myself forward toward Mrs. Kennedy, get a hold of her, put her back in the seat, and then crawl up on the top of the back seat and lay above both President and Mrs. Kennedy while the car was moving rapidly toward the hospital. Didn't you have a couple of uh, practice runs, kind of? uh, Like in the book, you're on the follow car on the left side, the floorboard, or what do you call that thing? The running board? Running board. Is that right? Running board. Right. So you're on the left side of the running board. And when the crowds got thick, you would run up. You would jump off that car and run up to the president's car and get on the running board there just in case things went haywire. That happened like two or three times ahead of time. Do you think that helped you to like gauge really the distance and how quickly you need to go? It may have. And we had brained for that type of thing to happen. But in the heat of the moment, you never know how you're going to react or how well you're going to do. And Jumping off a moving car onto a pavement that's not moving with you is a little bit difficult. And, and you probably weren't wearing uh, tennis shoes either. No, I wasn't. I was wearing my good old floor shines. And uh, I should make that company pay me. But uh, Yeah, you should. <laughs> the way I heard it, brought to you by floor shine. Yeah. Yeah. 
Agent number nine. It's one of the things we heard, we, you know, we practice. This is in real time, so you don't, you can't not make it if you miss. You're likely to be killed. Yeah. One shot. Yeah, I mean, really, the athleticism is incredible of what he accomplished. Just think about that. A car's moving. It's accelerating. You're jumping off. You're going after another moving car. You slip in the pavement. You know, not many people could do that. I didn't have a real clear shot either because I had a motorcycle. When I jumped off the car, there was a motorcycle police officer, Dallas, adjacent to our car, the one I was on just uh, to the left of the, just outside the left front wheel. And I had to get between him and the car I was on to get to the president's car. That was probably more scary to me than anything else. The thing that I find so interesting about all of this, just speaking really broadly, is the way you can take a big moment and distill it into a relatively small period of time. This book does it over a period of days, right? Five days in November. But I've also read accounts of six seconds, right? The six seconds it took to get off three shots. And it's just interesting that as time goes by, sometimes the best way to try and understand a moment is to make it as small as possible. So I've asked you this before, Clint, And you've told me that it feels like yesterday, that you remember with perfect clarity that day. But what, if anything, was consciously going through your mind as you were running toward the car? I mean, were you thinking or were you purely reacting? Probably a combination, but my whole purpose was to move forward, get onto the back of the car, to build that barricade protective cover up there for both President and Mrs. Kennedy. It's what we call in the Secret Service, cover and evacuate. Cover and let the driver have the opportunity to get you out of the danger zone. And that's what was supposed to happen. But I didn't get there in time to cover. The bullet outran me and it hit President Kennedy in the head. As moments go. I mean, that's your point in the afterward. One day you're Clint Hill, and literally seconds later, you're that guy. Did you know it at that point? When did you know that you had sort of stumbled, maybe even Forrest Gumped your way into our collective memory? I don't know. One strange thing that really did happen was I was in my residence in Alexandria, Virginia, and the doorbell rang. I went to the door, two men standing there. One was obviously a photographer, and the other was a reporter. They were from London, and they wanted to talk to me about the new film about me. And I said, I don't quite know what you're talking about. No film about me. Said, oh, well, it's just coming out. It, uh, Clint Eastwood is the star in it. Said, well, if there's a film, I don't know a thing about it. And I went back in the house, and I they left. They could see they're talking to each other and shaking their heads. And, what the hell's going on here? This guy won't admit they have a movie about him. And it wasn't a movie about me. 
there was a movie about a supposed Secret Service agent that they had uh, built a story around using some events. But the character was based on you. Well, eventually I found out that, yes, that was what they had based it on. I found that out from Eastwood, who admitted that to somebody in a letter or something, and they told me about it. I did meet Mr. Eastwood, and Lisa had her picture taken with him. (laughs) I I bet she did. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the movie, In the Line of Fire, classic. Yeah, He knew nothing about it. Nobody had approached him about it. They made this movie using him. So, yeah. so that, That made me, when it really struck me that, Geez, you suppose people think I'm, you know, something special? I, I don't think so. <laughs> because anywhere in my neighborhood, I can go anywhere I want to. Nobody ever mentioned anything about it to me. Whether it was a grocery store, drugstore, get my hair cut, nothing. When I first met him in 2009, he really had no idea his sort of, not his importance in history, but how well-known he was. You know, once we started going out and publicizing the first book that we were involved with together, The Kennedy Detail, that's when I remember him saying, gosh, all these people, they come up to me and they want to shake my hand. I really don't understand it. I mean, he really didn't have a clue. I still don't feel like a, I'm an imposter. You know, find somebody who's worthy. Sure. Shake their hand. Well, look, I mean, we can uh, debate your worthiness. You're going to lose that argument. I mean, because everybody believes and sees in you something truly admirable. You know, people often ask themselves, what would I do? What would I do if I were in that situation? How would I have responded if I was on that train when those terrorists, right, showed up? If I was on Flight 93, would I have been among the men who rushed the cockpit? And most people, they don't really know. They like to think they would be. They like to imagine themselves at their best. And then they see you doing something that they hope they would do. And look, fair or unfair, you get a lot of that projected onto you. And as time goes by, more and more. And now today, 60 years after the fact, I mean, it feels to me, Lisa, like the country is realizing that time is fleeting. This was one of those moments. I forget what Malcolm Gladwell calls it, but there are moments where everybody remembers where they were and what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And Clint was right smack in the middle of those moments. 9-11 is one such moment. Certainly Pearl Harbor for a whole lot of people, you know, many of whom are gone, was a moment. This was that moment. So that's why, Clint, because people like Chuck's sister, who's about nine years older than him, was sitting there cross-legged in front of the TV, I guess, watching it. And she's still around, and she's still looking for some weird way to close the loop. Millions of people are, and you're helping them do that, which is, <laughs> Clint Eastwood or not, that's pretty awesome, man. Well, I hope I'm helping them in some way. My intent is to give them the information that I know to be true, honest, factual, and let it go from there. I have nothing to bet up in me other than just I believe in the truth. Which is precisely why this book is persuasive. My comment to Chuck earlier, especially when you go through the afterward, which is brand new, and I think with respect to everything else in the book, the most important part of it, you don't sell past the sale, 
Mm. You address every conspiracy theory that's out there. You explain why it's wrong, why people believed it reasonably for a while, but then why it was debunked or should be debunked. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's not a big argument. You're kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, look, I was there, which is something almost nobody else can say. And that's why this book is going to be a collector's item. Lisa, I hope your publisher printed a whole bunch of them because <laughs> people are going to want them. Would you mind? Would you call them up and tell them that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, it, it really is. It's a beautiful book. It's um, a collectible edition. It's in hardcover. And it's one of those things. It's a keepsake, I think. But it's something to be passed down. I mean, you can share it with elementary school children. I mean, it's there's no bad language in it. It's rated PG maybe because of, you know, there is a murderer in it, but it's the truth and it's um, it's timeless. I don't know. I really think that it should be in all history classes as required reading, but I'm a little biased. But, you know, that's what it is, is history from well, somebody that was there. Yeah, I agree with what you said. I, I wish they would include it uh, in their history courses, uh, this is reality. This is what does happen, and it did happen in this case. Mm -hmm. And at the time, the transfer of power from one person to another was instantaneous, automatic. It's very important to know that that it can happen that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the way that it affected the world—that was one of the things. Because you know, Mike, I wasn't alive when this happened, but you know, in doing all the research and talking with Clint and seeing everything that I've seen about it, the world stopped for four days. Nothing else mattered. People were around the world were in shock. You know, we have this uh, dry cleaner here that we go to um, in our little village here, and we've gotten to know the people that run it. And um, the gentleman that runs it, I ran into him the other day, and he was asking about Clint, and he said, he couldn't believe it's been 60 years and he remembers when he was in South Korea and the teacher stopped class and said, President Kennedy has been shot and killed. And in South Korea, the world stopped. The kids were sent home from school. I mean, wow, that's amazing. Truly incredible. It's truly incredible. And the fact that there is still so much controversy and so much, you know, disagreement around it. I wonder, it's been, what, 21, 22 years since 9-11. Mm -hmm. So 40 years from now, the vast majority of people in this country will have no recollection of that day. And look at the conspiracies swirling around that event just 20 years in. Yeah. And imagine, imagine what's going to be out there in whatever the internet 2.0, 3.0, I mean, who knows with artificial intelligence and everything else, the truth is going to be in short supply. Yeah. And that to me is why, you know, our best hope of getting at it is through an eyewitness. And, you know, there you are, Mr. Hill. Yes. There you are. That's me. I'm reluctantly so, but it's me. Well, you were everywhere on that day, and those five days, you were everywhere involved in that. Well, I was talking to Mike about it earlier, just like, if you ask someone, 
What do you know about the Kennedy assassination? There are a lot of images that come to your mind. There's a Bruder film. You're the guy who's running up on the back of the car. President Johnson being sworn in. You're just right off camera there witnessing that. And John, John, just salute. every step along the way, you are there. John, John, and Mike right. said, Mike called to you Zelig, mm-hmm. which is uh, you know the Woody Allen film. And it's kind of like Forrest Gump, just being everywhere where everything important is happening. There you are. So my friends over at NetSuite are obsessed with numbers. And if you run a business, you probably are too. At least you should be. Because if you don't know your numbers, then you don't know your margins. And if you don't know your margins, then you don't know your expenses. And if you don't know your expenses, well, you are, as they say in business school, uh, screwed. So if you want to improve your operation dramatically, you need to consider your numbers along with these digits from NetSuite, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have already upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. You should too. That's why NetSuite's the number one cloud financial system out there. Nobody on the planet is better at streamlining accounting and financial management, inventory and HR. Nobody even comes close. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's a quarter of a century Last I checked my numbers, two and a half decades of helping businesses like yours do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And finally, one, because NetSuite knows that your business is one of a kind. So you get the customized solution for all your KPIs. Those are what you call key performance indicators. They're important. It's all in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage your risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve your margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist for free, and I hope you do. The checklist is designed to give you consistently excellent performance, and you can get it for free at netsuite.com slash mike. That's netsuite.com slash mike to get your very own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash mike. That's netsuite.com. 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 Netsuite. Yes, Netsuite. I said netsuite.com. He said netsuite.com. Slash Mike. But also, I think what um, is so interesting about this book is. Um, because Clint was right there in and amongst everything, you get a sense of what was all going on behind the scenes and what was happening in the chaos and the questions, along with all the emotion. You know, they couldn't stop to grieve and process this. He had to keep doing his job. He had to protect Mrs. Kennedy. They didn't know who was behind this. So, yes, the president is dead. Now they have to get President Johnson back to Washington. You know, is somebody going to shoot down the plane? So I think that's what's really fascinating is being right there in the middle of it. And then going through Mrs. Kennedy having to pick out where her husband's going to be buried. And, you know, there were different questions about that. You know, the family, I think, wanted him to be buried in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, You know, there were all these decisions that had to be made in this horrible, you know, moment when people, the unthinkable had just happened. And yet you have to continue on and do your job and 
she had to plan a funeral and Clint's there telling her, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, I don't think it's a good idea for you to walk through the streets of Washington, D.C. three days after there's been an assassination. It was a security nightmare. So all of those things that go on, um, I think, bring it to life for people to help them understand really how immensely tragic this was. And at the same time, she was doing all this stuff. After the funeral, she held a reception for all those heads of state that came there. And she told me earlier that day, that please remind me, meaning her, that John's third birthday is today, November 25th. And so they arranged for a little party after this reception for all these heads of state. There was a little party with just cousins and the various uh, military uh, assistants to the president, the Air Force and Navy, Army came there and they gave John little gifts like a helicopter and a boat. And, you know, not a real one, just a, a toy. But she remembered it and she managed to do that. And then later that night she called me and we took her over to the cemetery and she had a private moment there with her husband's body. When did you sleep? We left the White House around 10.30 on the 21st. Uh, first sleep I had was, well, I got to bed that night, but not until about one in the morning. Got up at six. Then all day the 22nd, you know, through past midnight, got to the White House at 4.30. Back in my office by six, went home eight, <laughs> put it on. Uh, I don't know, I, I didn't get any sleep the 22nd, uh, maybe one hour between 12 and 1 a.m. And in the book, you said you'd been awake for 42 hours before you finally got to sleep. Well, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. That yeah. doesn't surprise me. The fact and that, then the next You know, day. nobody ever talks about this, but I think it's super interesting. Like, I thought the same thing when I saw, uh, I think it was the Missiles of October. Remember? Uh, it was uh, William Devane, I think, played Kennedy in that. Like, that was a required viewing, you know, when I was in school. I think that's the first time I remember thinking... You know, when and how do you sleep? You're the leader of the free world, and it looks like we're entering into the end of the world, right? The potential nuclear Armageddon. You have to sleep because you can't function, but how do you, in the midst of a situation like that, do you dream or do you simply pass out and then just wake up screaming and getting back at it? Can't even imagine. Everybody tries to accommodate the president, whoever it may be, insofar as getting rest is concerned. But there are a lot of things that happen in the middle of the night which they have to be awakened and discussed with. So it really takes a toll. If you look at a person who takes the oath of office on the 20th of January, look at him six months later and then six months again, you're going to see a mad, big difference in how they appear, because it really wears a person down. It is a very difficult job, and it's not for somebody who can't take stress. 
because it is stressful. At your party, did you guys talk about this sort of stuff? Or was it football games, your favorite movies, your last great meal? What did you guys reminisce about? Things that happened along the way that, you know, people make mistakes, agents included. Those were the things we laugh about after the fact when it didn't cause any harm. And uh, we could laugh about it. And we all have those occasions that we know someone who did something that was really stupid. And uh, we laugh about it and try to learn from it. I'd like to hear more about that. I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus, but tell me a stupid story. Oh, well. Something. Tell me. Give me a cautionary tale, Clint. Something I can apply to my own, you know, my own ridiculous life. Well, I'm going to have to think now. I have to clean it up. No, you don't. Oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) I can clean it up later in the edit. (laughs) I mean, some things that happened... I had the privilege of serving five presidents, three Republicans and two Democrats, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And they all had different habits, different lifestyles. Eisenhower was older, was in his 70s at the end. And, uh, that sounds young now. Well, it does now. But he, he was, <laughs> his 70s, wow. Yeah. He, you know, and he, a teenager. Just a pup. He was a, a general. In fact, Mrs. Eisenhower never called him president. She called him general. The general. You want to talk to her? You're talking about the general. Do you see how he's diverting, Mike? I do. Away yep. from t- telling stories you know, about Eisenhower. the Secret Service agents. Well, even Mrs. Eisenhower, we had jokes. You know, she loved to go shopping, and she usually preferred to go to that French store, J.C. Penney. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was crazy times. Tell him the story about, wasn't there an agent that um, was overseas, and he ended up coming back on the Queen Mary or something like that. Brooks. <laughs> yeah, we had an agent. He's from New York. And he was always getting himself in trouble. And he was fine. He was overseas on an assignment. In fact, I think he was assigned to the a Paris office for a while. And he had to turn back to Washington, D.C. They sent him a message saying, you're required to return to Washington at the most earliest convenience and conveyance possible. He knew that the, I think it was the Queen Mary, was leaving one of the ports there in France, going to New York, and that was the earliest conveyance. Going the earliest departure. To and so he went mm-hmm. back to New York, and it took him, what, I don't know, two weeks to get there, whatever it was. <laughs> But that was just a typical type of guy that he was. And he got away with it. <laughs> he got a cruise on the Queen Mary because he followed orders he followed to orders. the letter. Leave an earliest conveyance possible. <laughs> we, should do a, we should do a book on uh, or a podcast. We'll prepare more for it, Mike, about funny things that happened in the Secret Service stories. You say when. You say when. We're standing by. I want to shift gears real quick, too, um, from the movie you didn't know about in The Line of Fire to one that I'm pretty sure you do, which is 
the documentary of your whole life, which I was honored to appear in. When is this thing supposed to be out in the world, Lisa? Do we know? Uh, it's called Agent Number Nine, the Clint Hill story. And we've wrapped the shooting for it. It's now in editing and post-production. So um, the, I know the director is working on it really 20 hours a day. So we're hoping to you know, see a finished cut maybe in a couple of months and then hoping that it will be released at some point in 2024, probably mid-summer you know, summer or fall 2024. I don't know much about Excellent. it. All I know is I had to sit for a taping four hours a day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, four days. That was rough. Let me guess, Lisa just took you to a studio and said, hey, let's go in here for a minute no, and have lunch and didn't let you know anything right in advance. Right here in this house. They came here and they changed the whole place around. And they were very good, though, very kind, very thoughtful. And they apparently have done a good job. I don't know. I haven't seen any of it. So, Well, and the great thing is, so, oh, part of the surprise was I invited the film crew to come and film this surprise reunion of the agents. So that becomes part of the So that will be part of the documentary oh, because they had gone around the country and filmed some of these guys, Ron Pontius and Jerry Blaine, who are Clint's longest friends, oldest friends in the Secret Service and went through so much of this with him. So they had gone and interviewed them separately. And so now in the film, you'll get to see them together at this surprise that he truly did not know about. I wasn't worried that, you know, he was gonna have a heart attack or something. I was more worried that he was gonna be so mad at me, but he wasn't, that was good. He was very happy in the end. I had to be happy, I mean, it was a, a wonderful event. I couldn't have dreamt it up. I mean, just it was fantastic. People are going to love it. They're going to love to be able to see that. They're going to love to imagine themselves there. They're going to love it, Clint. Uh, Most people would have and... canceled a trip to Italy for it, probably. <laughs> Look, I'm a neighbor. I've got all the access I need. Speaking of access, that's probably something to circle back with on the book. It's so accessible. It's not just that it's filled with facts and pictures. It's not just that it's relevant and personal. It's a history book for people who don't read history books. And that's why I think it's really important to own this thing. I said to you this morning, full disclosure, folks, I was out for my walk. I stopped by to get a cup of coffee with Lisa and to pick up a copy of the physical book so I could hold it up like this and and show you this is what it looks like. And we were chatting out back, and I said, honestly, when I read through this, it's like an amazing picture book with a giant caption that got completely out of hand. (laughs) That's how it feels. The pictures are incredible. And I don't say that to in any way diminish the import of the content. It's just so easy to consume. And I'm really glad you did it that way because... The stakes are pretty high with regard to the truth, and we can't ask people to consume something that's too dense or too difficult. Unfortunately, right? People just don't have the capacity for it or the patience for it anymore. This book's for everybody. Well, thank you, Mike. Don't mention it. It's the least I can do. We appreciate it. You know what I forgot to do, though? I forgot to get Clint to autograph it. If I come by again later with my 40-pound backpack... (laughs) 
covered with sweat when she signed it for me. money. <laughs> He's going to sell a lot of books with this podcast. I think we can give him a book. We'll even offer you a drink. Chuck, you need to come visit. A drink, good. Okay. <laughs> All right. There you go. Get on a plane, Chuck. Look, with regard to that, and I don't want to sell past the sale, but I, I know the publisher. I know what happens in situations like this. There's not going to be enough to go around. The book is going to sell out. If this is a thing that interests you, and it should be, get the book now. Go pre-order it now. Where do they go, Lisa? Amazon, the normal places? Amazon. Wherever. And if you want, or go to your local bookstore. We really like to support independent bookstores. And if you would like an autographed copy, you could stop by our house, but we don't recommend that. Or um, <laughs> go to bookpassage.com. And they have autographed copies available there. Bookpassage.com. Last thought, Clint. Yes, sir. I wonder if you would say something to people today who feel like they're living in a truly unprecedented time. People who look at the situation in the Mideast and maybe the divisions in our country and all of the uncertainty that comes from living in a time when the experts don't see eye to eye on any given topic. As a guy who lived through five days of maybe the greatest level of uncertainty in the 20th century, what, if any, words of advice or wisdom do you have for people who are just freaking out today by the headlines that we see? Well, I find it very difficult myself to continue to watch news stories recently. It's very hard to some of the things that are happening in Washington, D.C., Congress is not living up to what my expectations were of them. They, uh, you know, I used to just have the utmost respect for every member of Congress. Didn't matter the political party they represented, but that they've really gotten to the point where I have a very difficult time to having respect for them, any of them. There are very few that I would really point out or that I would respect. And it doesn't, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm an independent. To see the things that are happening now, even within a party, it's sickening. I wish they could get their act together. But for the common American people, we have to have patience. Eventually, I think it will work its way out. I think that uh, eventually we'll get back to normal, where people will be able to talk to each other, whether they're a Democrat talking to a Republican or, not, or whatever. I know I have friends. I had a friend who was a lawyer in Washington, and he said he had kept clients, one, they were Democrat and Republican, but he couldn't have them in the appointments with them in his office close together because if they met, they immediately got into an argument. So, I mean, it just gotten stupid. So all I can say is, I hope and pray for better days ahead. I really honestly think that we'll get there. We've been through some really trying times in the past. In 1968, the riot in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention was something that uh, it was hard to believe you could get over that. But well, we did, and we've gotten over 
a lot of things. And so just have faith. Make people be honest again. I wish that they would be. Be kind. Yes, be kind, be thoughtful, be considerate. Take care of each other. I don't know what else I could tell you. You're right there with the Boy Scouts, Clint. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, yeah. kind, there's nothing, obedient, there's nothing wrong with that. cheerful. There's nothing wrong with the Boy Scouts. <laughs> you know, Clint, it's funny. I said to your wife, the way I heard it, I mean, it's the name of this podcast, and sometimes it just feels like when I'm looking around at the different takes on the different, <laughs> the different set of facts, or maybe different takes on the same sets of facts, you know, I'm glad you're here to, uh, I'm just going to say it, to put the truth out there. It's the truth, I believe, anyway, the way you heard it, since you actually saw it as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Before you sign off, do you guys want to talk about Paul Landis or not? It's up to you. You're asking me or you're asking? No. Uh, yeah, I'm asking you. If you yes, have sir. a question, I'll answer it as best I can. Okay. Yeah, I mean, look, folks, if you didn't know, Paul Landis uh, is another Secret Service agent who I think is approaching 90 years of age. He was only 21 or 22 at the he's time. He's 88. But he's written a book. He's 88, he's 88 he's now? Mm-hmm. Okay. I know your friends. And Paul, in fact, is mentioned more than a few times in this book, his pictures mm-hmm. in this book. But he's putting out a book that makes some claims that I think a lot of people are either confused by or curious about. So obviously, you know, we are curious about that, too. What has he said that holds up or worries you in terms of the historical record? Well, the biggest thing is that uh, he has written this book and there's certain information in the book that is different than information that he provided the Secret Service on November 27th, 1963, and again on November 30th, 1963, in the form of memorandum and signed, and then that information was given to the Warren Commission. The information in those statements is not the same as the statements that he's making in this book. And so I find it very difficult to know which one to actually believe. I, it's hard for me. I'm very upset by what I read in the book. He alleges that he found a bullet in prime condition in the limousine behind Mrs. Kennedy where she was seated on the top of the, where the cloth or leather met the metal. When she got up to accompany the president's body, it was on a gurney in the emergency room. He alleges that he found a bullet and that he put it in his pocket and that he had it in his pocket as he went in to the emergency room. That's as far as I could take it in so far as, uh, well, he, I'll say this. He did tell me once in March of 2014 that he had found a bullet in the car, that he had put it in his pocket, and that he took it into the emergency room and put it on a gurney in the hallway. Now, that is very important. He put it on a gurney in the hallway. It's different 
from what it states in his new book. In his new book, he says that he then went into the trauma room, trauma room one, where President Kennedy was being treated, and he placed that bullet on the, he says, the operating table where President Kennedy was, um, which Kennedy was never moved from the gurney onto the operating table or examination table. So there's a lot of conflicting things in there. If you know the story and you can go down the rabbit hole and, you know, read all the research and reports. But um, I think, you know, between Clint and I, what we have talked about is your memories are much fresher and vivid right after an event happens. All of the agents were required to write these detailed statements, and Paul Landis did as well, as did Clint. And then to now 60 years later, memories get a, a little blurrier as time passes, and you have all kinds of other information now that can muddy up what your memory was at that time. So I don't know, I say take it with a grain of salt, as opposed to... Clint, his memories have never wavered. Every time he tells this story, and let me tell you, I have heard this a thousand times, and I can almost repeat it verbatim because for him, it's like seeing this movie in his mind, and he remembers so vividly what happened, and the story has never changed. So that's what I see as the difference. Yeah. I mean, it's an odd situation. For me, I have nothing but respect for anybody who ever served in the Secret Service. I mean, it's just an extraordinary group of remarkable people. But when you look at accounts like that, it's hard not to... I mean, he must have given an inventory shortly afterwards of the things he removed from the car. He would have been asked to do that and to not include a bullet in that. Well, that's an affirmative choice and a baffling one, no? Well, he did mention, I think, in the, in the statements that he picked up Mrs. Kennedy's hat, her purse, and a Zippo cigarette lighter that had the presidential seal on it that were lying in the back seat. That much he did say. But one of the other things he did say in that statement on November 30th was, I did not go into trauma room one. Trauma Room 1 was where the president's body was taken when it went into the emergency room. Trauma Room 1 within the emergency room was where the doctors examined him. And they did not take him off the gurney because they didn't want to waste the time. And wasn't the alleged magic bullet found on Connolly's stretcher? According to the Warren report, that's what they think. I don't know that they can conclusively prove that. In fact, I'm pretty sure they cannot. At the time that the bullet was found, it was found by a man employed by the hospital. He was a senior engineer. Engineer, yeah. And he found it, and there were two gurneys in the hallway. And he was moving them, and when one of the gurneys hit the wall... He heard this clink, and there was this bullet on that gurney. Now, the Warren Commission person that was interrogating him, this man, really managed to get him confused. I've read his testimony time after time after time, and he has really gotten this guy confused 
with the way that he asked the questions and the questions that he asked. And so you come away saying, you really don't know which of the two gurneys, and there were two, one was Conley's gurney that they had taken him from the car to trauma room two, examined him, realized he needed surgery, put him on the elevator on that gurney, took him up to the surgical ward, removed him from that gurney, put him on the surgical table, and then set that gurney back down to the emergency entrance level. But there was another gurney there. A young boy had been brought in by his mother, and he was bleeding. I don't know what he'd done, but he was bleeding. He was, he was screaming. And so the attendants were trying to help her, and they were wiping his body and cleaning it all up. It was really a bloody mess. It appears that that might be the gurney where this hospital employee found the bullet. So I'm telling you, it's you need to. There's a lot to all of this. <laughs> well, for me, the reason I think it's worth talking about now, to Chuck's point, his book is going to be out there five, ten years from now, along with lots of other books. The documentary about your life is going to be out there, along with In the Line of Fire and Oliver Stone's Nonsense. And future generations are going to have a lot of material to wade through in their search for the truth. And this book, through pictures and firsthand testimony, offers, again, not to oversell it, but in my estimation, the most persuasive and most honest and most memorable recollection of the events that we have. So in the end, everybody's going to have to do their own work and poke around and search for the truth as best they can. But uh, this is a real service that you guys have done. And so thanks again for doing it. Thank you, I think sir. it matters. I think it matters today, and I think it's going to matter a lot down the road. Thank you. And thank you for what you do, Mike, and Chuck, too. Yes, both of you. Thank you very much. Chuck, unfortunately, uh, is going to be let go this week. <laughs> yeah. But you say that he had a great run, and he's got literally dozens of fans who are going to miss him or at least mm -hmm. pretend to. But thank you for saying that, Lisa. It, it I means appreciate a lot to it him. as well. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you can push the mute button, Chuck. It'll shut him off. <laughs> If only it were that simple. Clint. I'm going to work on that. If only we all had a device that we could point at anybody and mute them. Wow. Get me one of those. Thank you. Thank you. If you leave some stars, could you make it five? And before you go, could you please subscribe? If you leave some stars, could you make it five? And before you go, could you please subscribe? If you leave some stars, could you make it five? And before you go. Could you please subscribe?